off all over campus. They weren't supposed to, but every student just about would rush to his aid. They weren't supposed to. They had security guards that did all that work. And um, they had just built a brand new building, and they called it the Charles Weigel Music Center. Remember that building? And they were going to have the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Charles Weigel, 91 years old. They're going to have the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and Dr. Hiles, Jack Hiles, gave the message, and then they went out to cut the ribbon. And Hiles was in the crowd, and the dignitaries, some of the dignitaries from the city were there. And um, well, Hiles was there. I forget who had the scissors and was going to cut. But Dr. Hiles looked around and couldn't find Charlie Weigel anywhere. He thought, I wonder where's Charlie. So he slipped off from the crowd, and he went to Charlie's apartment. And uh, as he approached the apartment, he heard some noise, a ruckus. And he went up to where the door was, and the door was ajar. Don't ask me how a door can be ajar, but the door was ajar. And uh, he pushed the door open, and here's Charlie Weigel. He's got his socks and his shoes off, and he's jumping up and down on the bed. He said, Hallelujah, 91 years old, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Dr. Hiles got his attention and said, said, Charlie, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm just practicing for heaven, Brother Jack. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that's the kind of guy he was. He would come into the dining room. And I, I led the singing in the dining room for a lot of the meals. That's why I loved those eight I got sick. And, uh, but he would get there a little early. And he'd come through the crowd. Everybody would greet him. He'd take his hat off. And he'd throw it up on the rack and make it every time. It was a shell. Make it every time. Then as he came in, we were already in there. And I say, way up, me and the, uh, a few others. And he'd pick up his cane and he'd shoot it at you like this. And then he'd come in and sit down and he'd share that story with us over and over again. And he'd sit down and he'd sing. Uh, no one ever cared for me like Jesus or... The song's about heaven. And uh, you talk about a blessing to be around. Anyway, what a blessing. What a blessing. He shared some other stories with us. What did I tell you? Psalm 121. I'm going to do something tonight that I don't almost said often do. I do it often, probably. Um, I, I preached this message. Don't look at me like that, you guys. You three. At Carl Sutherland's meeting. In one message, I'm breaking it up into two. Yeah, you hush. And um, you're, you're, my assignment is you're to pretend like you ain't never heard it before. Hey, I can't help it, Pastor, if half of this crowd follows me around the country. You know, they say an evangelist got three sermons. That's not true. I have five. And, uh, but anyway, you know, you never know who's going to be there. And you always seek the will of God. Uh, heavenward, the decision on what to preach on is, what is the will of God? That's all that matters. Our, the decision when the preacher decides to preach is not what do I think the people need. I don't know what the people need. I don't know your heart. You don't even know your heart most of the time. But he does. And sometimes what I think you need or what I think the audience needs is not what they need. 
And I've, I've laid a few eggs in my lifetime, more than a few. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, heavenly, heavenward, the bottom line is, what is the will of God? And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Uh, on the earthly side, this enters into what a pastor preaches on. I know that I need this. I need it. If I need it, I'll guarantee you, you need it too. And so, you know, that's on the earthly side. And so I'm not apologizing. I'm going to stand my ground. <laughs> and uh, you guys who took notes, don't you dare correct me. Not even after the service. <laughs> I'll flatten your tires. Uh, anyway, uh, Psalm 121. If you're able to, I'll ask you to stand with me, please, one more time in reverence to the public reading of the Word of God. Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I never looked upon it as this until just a few months back. But the next four verses are probably the greatest proof text, at least in the Old Testament, of the eternal security of the believer. You know, we live in General Baptist country, and I'm not against General Baptist. I'm for them. I'm for Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm just against false doctrine. We got two or three little squeaky amens out of that. You'll you'll get some courage later on. Uh, but the the fact is, uh, one thing they don't believe in is security of the believer, which means historically they're not even Baptist. Well, listen to what it says in verse five: "The Lord is thy keeper." I have a question: Has God ever had anything that He lost, couldn't find? If the Lord is thy keeper. That's eternal security, isn't it? The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee. That's preservation. He keeps you. He preserves you. And you don't get moldy if you don't get stuck in the refrigerator either, like regular preserves. Then notice it says, He shall preserve thy soul. Now, that's not eternal security. What is God made a promise to preserve, well, I'm not talking about your body, your soul. That's the saved part of you. Your body is not saved yet. That's not going to get saved until the rapture or the resurrection. If you're dead when it happens, it's a resurrection. If you're alive, it's a rapture. Uh, your body is not saved yet, but your soul is. The Lord shall preserve. He promised to keep your soul. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth. How long? Even forevermore. Well, that's not, if, if all of that doesn't add up and equals eternal security, pray tell somebody explained it to me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray thy blessing on the preaching time tonight. I really don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I'm really not sure what direction 
that you want me to head this evening. But I believe we're started right. And I pray, oh God, that you minister to every heart in this room. Have your will done. Minister to my heart. I need your help. Help us, please, tonight. And we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I'm going to preach tonight on... I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach half of the message tonight. And you've got to come back tomorrow. Get the other half. Yeah, I've got to work tomorrow. Well, quit. Well, there's enough food down there to feed you for a couple of weeks. Uh, so I won't have to... No, I wouldn't actually do that. But unless providentially hindered, that doesn't mean if Aunt Susie comes over, that means unless God stops you, you come tomorrow. And, and get the other half. It'll make a lot more sense to you if you'll do that. I'm preaching tonight and tomorrow morning on what to do when. I'll say that again. I was divinely interrupted. I'm preaching tonight on what to do when. And you fill in the rest. You could put, you could put your circumstance. You could put anything else in there you want to. And it would fit. What to do when? Um, I find myself preaching encouraging sermons, Pastor, more than ever before. Maybe it's because I need them. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason. But the older I get, I find myself preaching encouraging. The truth of the matter is, some churches and some people are not revived, and they're not right with God simply because they're discouraged. Well, the Lord willing, tomorrow morning I'll preach the other half of this message. In the second session, I'll preach on what to do, or what happens, rather, what happens when you get discouraged. There are seven things that happen when you get discouraged. And I'll give you a little recipe to overcome discouragement, which is the same recipe to prevent it to begin with. So, I, so it looks like, looks to me like that's the direction that... We're headed in, and as a result, that song service and the comments your pastor made fit just perfectly. Set the table. Um, I've been there's a church in Virginia, not about an hour from D.C. I was sharing this a little bit of it with Pastor earlier. I've been preaching there every year for almost 30 years now. Uh, the past man who started that church, name was Jim Woods. Jim Woods was an old. He was an old gambler, but got saved and started preaching. Then I, I don't think he had any formal Bible college or seminary education, but he went to preaching. Jim was the kind of guy that uh, when I'd go out there for a meeting, uh, they put me up in a motel down in Charlottesville about 20, 25 minutes away, and at 12 o'clock he'd come and pick me up. And he'd take me to called a restaurant called the, the Jim Woods Grill. It wasn't his, but that's what it was called, the Woods Grill. And we'd eat. And then we'd go out soul winning. We'd go door to door. And I don't know if you've ever been to Virginia or not. The roads aren't like this. They're not even like this. They're like this. Every which way. And uh, I, that, that, that old boy was 60 and 70 years old. I could not keep up with it. I'm serious. And we, he'd, we'd go visit again. Are you talking about unconventional soul winning? We'd knock on a door and he'd have his big Bible under his arm like this. 
He didn't hide it like we've been taught to, you know. And he'd knock on the door, and somebody would answer the door, and he'd say, Hi, I'm Jim Woods. You know me? Of course, most of them did. He'd been there. Then he'd been there for almost 40 years. But very unconventional. Uh, and then he, he, he got up in years and was going to have to have a replacement. And his health went downhill. And shortly before he went to be with the Lord, why, his grandson became the pastor. And uh, the grandson was a fine, godly young man. I was sharing with the pastor, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but in my estimation, probably a novice. But he had a good heart. He was a soul winner. He was the kind of guy that didn't, didn't know any, I mean, didn't know any strangers. Never met a stranger in his life. And everywhere he went, he'd witness. People knew him. He became the pastor of that church. I don't know how to say this, but a sin entered his life. And he got up, he got under conviction about it. And he got up behind the church pulpit one Sunday, and he confessed what he had done. And he resigned his position as pastor. And he said, now, if you want to call me back later, you know, we'll talk about it then. But right now, I need to put my family back together. I have four beautiful children. Beautiful children. Seventeen years old on up. All of those kids, every one of them, every time I'd see them, they'd run and hug me. I mean, just sweet, sweet kids. And um, even after that, he'd come and sit in the back while the pulpit supply would fill the pulpit. And he was all the time, he'd moved out of his house, trying to put his family back together. I'm trying not to... I'm trying to share enough detail you get the story, but not too much. Detail you don't need, I want to leave out. And uh, he worked hard at putting his family back together. He loved his wife. He loved his wife. He loved his wife. She kicked him out. I don't understand that either. <laughs> but she did, and I don't know where he was living, somewhere else. And um, the last words his own dad heard come out of his mouth were, and it happened the day before Father's Day. He said, Dad, if I thought that killing myself would make my wife love me again, I'd do it. The next morning, Father's Day, he didn't show up for church. And they wondered where he was. Family got together, search party got together. They weren't looking for him. Church Big, beautiful buildings. I mean, beautiful buildings. Huge complex. 320 in the Christian school. And 32 acres of ground. They went looking for him all Sunday afternoon. It began to, began to get a little bit dark, and most of them quit and went home. The daughter and, the two, and two of the sons at least, maybe all three. And a few others continued looking. <clears throat> they found on Father's Day his pickup truck at the, just at the edge of the woods on the church property. They found his cell phone in the pickup truck. They continued the search, flashlights, 
They went into the woods. And the daughter, the daughter, Father's Day, found Dad hanging from a tree by the neck. He had climbed up this deer stand, tied a rope, one end of the tree branch, the other end of his neck, and he jumped. And it hung there, they said, for at least eight or nine hours before they found it. When I heard that, the, 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 another family member called me and told me about it. Well, I got a hold of the people at the church, and I told them, look, you know, I make a, I make a meeting with the pastor, not with the church. And uh, usually if the pastor is gone for whatever reason, I automatically assume the meeting is called off. They called me back two or three days later. They said, preacher, we want the meeting. We want to go on, continue. So I went out there, and I stayed in their private chamber is where I fell. And uh, I preached, among others, uh, I preached one, two, three, four, five, six, seven messages designed to do nothing, nothing but encourage. Most people didn't need slapped upside of the head for their sins at that point. All they needed was encouragement. This message was born out of that experience. I preached something similar to this when I resigned the church I pastored in Hamburg, Pennsylvania back in the 80s. Well, I called it then what to do when the pastor resigns. Because we had a real close relationship. So when I resigned, you know, it just caused a lot of panic. Um, but I'm preaching tonight on what to do when. Now I want you to fill in the blank. I really don't care what you put in there. It might be something that's a little tiny incident in your life. It might be a summary of many years of your life. It doesn't matter. What to do when? And you thought, listen to me carefully. Job 14.1. Man that is born of woman. That's most of us, isn't it? There's few days and full Full, not once in a while, full of trouble. You mark it down, life is full of unpleasant experiences. You, sorry son, you are going to have them if you don't already. Life is full of trouble. Trouble is just a part of life. I had a man in my church when I pastored in Pennsylvania, a Pennsylvania Dutch, Marty Sprout. He'd quote that verse like this, man that is married to a woman... That's not what it says. Man that is born of woman. I don't care who you are. I don't care how those who raised you tried to protect you. Nothing you can do about it. A life is one trouble after the other. And by the way, I might add, if you'll respond to your trouble instead of react, and I'll get there soon, then the, you won't have to go through the same trouble again, probably. Uh, each one is a step through life. Life is just absolutely full of trouble. Dr. Robertson used to make the statement, what makes a man great is trouble born in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Trouble does not make you great. It's your response to it. If you respond, that makes you great. 
I have a bunch of signs in my office. My office is about half the size of this floor space area. It's more a production room than an office where we produce courses for the Bible College. And I have a lot of signs in my office. One of them that faces where I sit says at the bottom this. Now listen carefully. This is going to sound a little worldly. Uh, but you'll understand what it says. Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Do you get the gist of that? Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to live, live your life while it's raining, during the storm. Man that is born of woman, a few days. Now, the truth of the matter is, trouble does a lot of things. Trouble is common. Trouble unifies. Trouble, if you respond to it, deepens your spirituality. Trouble produces reality. You know, we protect our children when they're growing up. We don't want them to... We think we're going to protect them from ever having trouble baloney. They're going to have it. I'm not saying let them go through all of it. I'm, when they're little, I'm saying, I say grow up. They need, they need to learn to respond to it. You walk it down. You fellas are old enough. Some of you. You fellas are old enough. You understand life is just from birth to death, one trouble after the next. And if you're not going through any trouble right now, just hang on, baby. Yours is coming right around the corner. By the way, when you did it ever occur to you that ever, life is not designed to be a lot of mountaintop experiences, except for the fact that every mountaintop is made out of two valleys. You're going to have as many valleys, if not more, than you're going to have mountaintop experience. But I'm going to give you a little, it's very practical, there's nothing deep theological about it. What to do when? I don't care if it's a toothache, I don't care if it's, you know, an explosion in your family relationship, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's losing a loved one. What to do when? And you put your experience in the end of it. I got eight things I want to say about that. I'll give you four of them tonight. Then you can go down, sip coffee, so you can't get to sleep later on, and talk about it. Are you ready? Number one, very simple. Don't panic. God is still on the phone. Put that in your smoking pipe. Don't panic. Don't panic. God is still on the world. Did it ever occur to you that when those planes went into the Twin Towers and went into the Pentagon and that one down in Pennsylvania and, uh, and killed 3,000 innocent Americans, did it, uh, we considered it a huge tragedy. What are we going to do now? But the fact is, God wasn't wringing his hands wondering what to do. Oops! I'm saying, no, no, nothing, nothing catches God by surprise. In fact, everything in life, everything in life, no matter if it's something like that or in your personal life, 
is either sent by God or allowed by God. And since God is sovereign, and since He's in control of every detail of all of your details, that means then that everything that comes your way is sent by God directly or indirectly. Don't panic! Well, we have a tendency to panic. That's a, that's a natural reaction. But my advice is don't panic. God is still on the throne. He that keepeth Israel is not asleep and is not slumbering. God knows exactly what is going on. And God has it all under control. Don't panic. Don't panic. Our God is sovereign. And somehow, some, I'm going to fall over a can of soup if you watch me. Somehow, whatever's happening in your life happens to be a part of God's sovereign plan for you. The preacher, I don't understand it. I don't need it. Did it ever occur to you that there's not one place in the Bible where God ever asks you to understand it? In fact, you read Isaiah chapter 40. He warns you not to try. You just make a big fool of yourself, and you might go crazy. So he says, he's unsearchable. Don't even try to God doesn't ask you to understand him, but it does require you to trust him. So preacher, that's hard. In I know. Thank you. I'm 76. I know. I'm saying, don't panic. God is still on the road. In the life of a Christian, there is no panic button. There isn't one. There's no place in the will of God for a panic button. So number one, don't panic. God is still on the throne. He knows what's going on. He knows every detail. Somehow and for some reason, he has either ordered it or allowed it. I don't understand it either. And I can't explain it. Don't ask somebody to explain it. Some of those things are just unexplainable, ununderstandable. But fellas, don't panic. Don't panic. I know that's, you know, that's our first automatic reaction. I understand that. I'm saying, don't panic because God is still. Panic is telling God, you don't know what you're doing. Well, if that's not a sin, I don't know what is. Don't panic. God is still. Still. He's. Are you getting it? He's still on the throne. He's still in control. He still has the reins. He hasn't lost anything. God hasn't slipped a cog. He's in sovereignly in control of every minute detail of your life and of this country and of this world. What a guy. Well, his name is Kevin Ludicky. When I first met him, I thought his name was Ludicrous. <laughs> his name was Kevin Ludicky. He got saved in our church when he was a teenager was a member of our church after our church was started. He came and helped start it. He's out of church away from the Lord now. Born again man. 
But when it comes to politics and morals, he's a very, very, very uh, strict moral man. Very strong conservative. He makes a lot of <laughs> rhinos. And a few others look like liberals. He added me a DVD one day. He said, I'd like for you to watch this when you get a chance. Don't worry about getting it back to me. Just, you know, when you... I kept it for a year and a half. Finally told my wife, we've got to watch our thing. David Gibbs was on the DVD. Uh, Donald Howard was on the DVD. Others. I mean, it was a tremendous Christian answer to uh, what's going on in our country, the liberal Democrats. Uh, he came into the lobby. I was waiting for my car to be serviced. And he came into the lobby where I was sitting and you could tell he was extremely upset. He'd been watching the news evidently. And he said to me, Andy, uh, he spent he, a lot of time complaining and worrying and crying about the fact that America is trying to take God out of society. They're not trying to say there is no God. They're just trying to throw him back out in the universe where they don't have to answer to it, or they think. He came into the lobby and he said, Andy, he said, what in the world is happening in our country? And he went through a few incidents and he said, talk to me, Andy. He said, help me, tell me what's happening. And I said, Kevin, I can answer your question in four words. He said, please, what are they? I said, Jesus is coming soon. It doesn't matter what's happening nationally or in your local area or even in your life when it comes to this. It's all a part of God's sovereign plan. Amen. And we know that all things, of course, except the things that happen to you. Don't panic. Don't panic. God, still on the throne. And he hasn't slipped off. And he's not going to. He's not, he's, God, he's never going to step down. And he's never going to slide over and let somebody else share it with him. So don't panic. I do care. It's going to sound hard. But I don't care what you're going through. God is in control. Don't panic. God is still on the throne. Number two, examine yourself. Every tragedy or every difficulty or every dark day or every storm or every valley that comes your way is God's way of trying to get you to stop your busy self-created life and examine yourself. Look it up later, but I'll give you the scripture text. Psalm 26, the first two verses. And Psalm 139, the last two verses. David said, examine me, O Lord. He was at a critical point in his life. And he used it as a time of, Lord, examine me. Is there anything of all in here? Over and over again, the Bible says, examine the It never says examine the preacher or examine the next guy or examine the deacons. It always says examine yourself. You know, when David committed the scarlet sin, the only sin in the Bible called by color. 
Well, Scarlet said adultery. They don't call it that today, do they? They call it affair, one night stand, you know, something of that. Adultery, the Bible calls it. And then he had her husband murdered, close loyal servant of his, to try to cover his guilt in the sin. However, God squealed to the prophet. Sometimes God will do that. God will squeal to the man of God about you. And the prophet Nathan came to David and stuck his sanctified finger under David's regal nose and said, Thou art the man! You're guilty! And immediately David got right. Immediately. Sometime later, maybe a few months, maybe a year, maybe more than a year, I don't know, maybe less than a few, but later, he wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is that great confession psalm. It begins, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And for 13 verses, he confesses his sin. Not one single time did he try to blame Bathsheba. Now, I'm going to be real frank with you. She should have taken some of the blame. Because if he shouldn't have seen it, she shouldn't have shown it. That's good preaching by the Father, isn't it? But, not one time did he try to blame her. Not one time did he try to blame Uriah, her husband, for not staying home and taking care of her. Thirty-five times. In 13 verses, you'll find the first person pronoun, I, me, my, or my. Examine me! Oh, hey, when trouble comes your way, the first thing you ought to ask, Lord, it's me. Is there anything in my heart that is not right? There's nothing. There's nothing that will pave the way to comfort and encouragement through your circumstance, through your storm or your valley, like a personal self-examination. Ask yourself, ask yourself, am I a part of the problem or a part of the solution? Because listen to me carefully. If you're not willing to be a part of the solution, you are the problem. You can put that one in your smoking pipe too, if you like. Ask yourself, self-examination. Every major change in life is nothing more than God getting your attention to stop and examine yourself. Isaiah did that. Isaiah ministered under, I believe it was four kings. One of those kings he was very close to, King Uzziah. Some Bible commentators think that he might have been King Uzziah's nephew or some family relation because he seemed to have access to the king's court on a what a level, seemingly friendly basis. And the Bible says in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah went back in his mind to reminisce about his call to the ministry. And he starts... The recollection of that with these words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
And Isaiah, the king died. Isaiah got an upward look first. And he saw the Lord. Then he got an inward look. And he said, woe is me. And then he got an outward look. Hey, he got saved by good looks. He got an hour. And he said, Lord, I'll go. Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? I'll go. Now, here's what I'm saying. You know what the first three words out of Isaiah's mouth were in the record? Woe is me. You didn't know Isaiah had a horse named Nismi, did you? God said, God said a tragedy. God said a, 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 an undesirable experience into Isaiah's life, and his first words were, why, why did he all of a sudden say, woe is me? I'll tell you why. Because he had already looked into his heart and examined himself. When trouble comes, I don't care what it is, little bitty things, something at work, something at home, something you read about in the newspaper, it doesn't matter what it is. Stop and examine yourself. And if it's a personal thing, ask yourself, am I a part of the problem or am I going to be a part of the problem? Well, because you're either going to be a part of the problem if you're not already. Or you are the problem. If you're not a part of the solution, you are the problem. Um, there are two reasons, basically, that God sends storms into your life. One is discipline. You can look up Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11. Read them later. Uh, the other is to test your faith. When I pastored Hamburg, PA, I preached the... I was sitting on the platform. No, I take that back. I just lied. I was sitting on the chair. The chair was on the platform. I never sat on the... And I, and, I, and I got to looking around. All the time about this size. We had a pretty good crowd that Sunday morning for us. And the song leader, Don Gilford, was leading the singing. And it hit me like a ton of bricks as I sat there, Pastor. Every single person of teenage to adult age on the property that morning was undergoing some critical, I'm talking about not normal, critical, serious problem in life. Some of them were self-created, some were not. Most of ours are. And then it hit me like another ton of bricks as we sang the next verse. I never preached an entire sermon designed to do nothing but encourage. Oh, I'd put encouragement in a sermon here or there, but never preach an entire sermon to do nothing but encourage. So I sat down that week and I built a whole series of sermons on encouragement. One of them was called God is in Trouble. And here's the, here's the points of the sermon. Point one, God is in trouble. Point number two, God is in your trouble. He doesn't have any of his own. God is in your trouble. Don't blame everything on the devil. I'm all for kicking the teeth down his head down his throat. But the fact is, sometimes you ought to give God credit for things you blame the devil for. God is in trouble. God is in your trouble. God is up to something in your trouble. 
God is up to something good in your trouble that will affect both you and those around you. Now it's up to you to find out what he's up to. And go to work beside him. By the way, I can tell you what he's up to. All things work together for good. For those who love the Lord, call according to his purpose. Now that verse does not say everything that happens turns out good. It says all things work together for good. What's the good? This that's happening to me. What's the good that could possibly this work for? Well, the next verse tells you to make you more like Jesus Christ. Everything that God sends your way, if you'll respond to it, now if you'll react to it, it won't, but if you'll respond to it, it'll help make you more like Jesus Christ. Don't know how I got off on that point. That was early. You know, the, the process of, of emotions when tragedy hits, shock, disorder, shock, sorrow, anger, bitterness, sin, depression. Now you can stop it anywhere down the road. But if you let it go, that's what will happen. I don't know how I got up on that, but that was fun. Number one, don't panic. God is still on the floor. Number two, examine yourself. Number three, quickly. And I've said this before, but I will illustrate it. Don't react. Respond. Our first Action when trouble comes is to react. Uh, that, that's just normal. That's human. And it's wrong. But it's normal. So, preacher, what's the difference between a reaction and a response? Uh, I, I, if I'm going to watch news at all on TV, I watch Fox News. Uh, they've even got some liberals on there. They've got a sodomite woman on their staff. Of course, Trump put sodomites on his staff, too, you know. <laughs> But anyway, they have their problems. But if I'm watching news, it'll be Fox News for the simple reason they give both sides and I can make up my own mind. It's not the liberal trying to convince me or the conservative. You know, you understand that. But I, whether you understand it or not, I watch Fox News. And uh, they, they, I don't know where in the world those anchors went to school. But they never learned the difference between response and reaction. They're two different things. They usually say, we'll get his reaction. They don't want a reaction, but they want a response. What's the difference? Here it is. You get sick. Some ugly symptoms, painful symptoms crop up in your body. You go to the medical doctor, or so, and uh, he examines you head to toe, thorough examination. He takes you into his office. He sits you down the other side of his desk. And he says, I'm going to give you this medicine. He writes out a prescription and gives it to you. And he says, you go home and take it for two weeks as prescribed. And in two weeks, I want to see you in my office again. You take the medicine as prescribed. Two weeks later, the bottle is empty. You go back to him. And he gives you the same examination. And it takes you into his office and sits you down. Now, if he says you're reacting to the medicine, that's bad news. 
That means your body is doing the opposite of what the medicine is designed to do. You're having a reaction. Okay. If he says you're responding to the medicine, that's good. A response is a correct action. A reaction is an incorrect response. Did that click? Don't react. Hey, you know martial arts. I don't think about martial arts. Well, I take that out. I have a black belt. Pulls my pants up. I don't think about martial arts, jujitsu or, or taekwondo or karate or whatever they call it. But do you know, do you know what the basic foundation of all the martial arts is? Is when somebody attacks you, they teach you how not to react but respond. If you react, you'll turn around and run or you'll just, you know, but if you respond, you can whip the guy. Now they teach how to do it. There's a part you have to run. But well, that's what it is foundationally. Hey, they've learned the secret. When trouble comes your way, whether you've created it or not, don't react. Don't react. Respond. Get in that divine elevator. Or the prayer closet and say, Lord, it's me, Brother Jim. What do you want me to learn? That's a response. Don't react, respond. Then number four, we'll, we'll, we'll shut it out on number four. Remember that it's all a part of God's sovereign plan to make you like His Son. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Circumstance doesn't make you more like his son. Your response, if you respond to it, it does. Back in the garden, God created Adam out of the dust of the ground, outside the garden, down the Mesopotamian Valley. He breathed in Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Then the Bible says he took him and he planted him. Don't ask me how deep. He put him in the garden of Eden. And uh, I don't know that it happened exactly like this, but, you know, I have a sanctified imagination. If you don't believe this, leave me alone. Go down and drink your coffee. But I, I, can, I can just imagine. I can just imagine. You know, God, one day God had him and said, we're going to line up all the animals. They're going to march by and you're going to name them. And so God stood there in the garden with Adam and Mr. and Mrs. Cow walked by called him cow. Mr. and Mrs. Horse trotted by and he called him horse. Mr. and Mrs. Skunk went by and he called him skunk. And Adam noticed before long that every mister had a missus. And the only creature God made didn't have a missus was little old him. Me, Adam. I don't know what happened this way, but I can just imagine his bottom lip starting to quiver. And a tear coming up in his eye and him saying, God, I know I got you. I'm lonely. So you know the story. God put him to sleep under a tree. 
God reached into his side, pulled out a rib. And out of that rib, he made a woman. You know how it is when you're first waking up, especially out of a, an induced sleep like an anesthetic? I mean, you're foggy, your mind is foggy, your eyes are blurry. Adam was waking up. Shouting over that. Leave me alone, I said. And he began to rub his eyes. And he saw God leading this beautiful creature through the garden toward him. God came up to him. Adam stood on his feet. And God said, Adam, look what I got for you. And Adam said, Wow! You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Would you marry me? And Eve said, Why, sure, honey. You're the only man on earth for me. Do you know why God created Adam and Eve? He wanted a creature on earth in his image. We don't understand all that that refers to entail, but God created man in his own image. However, in Genesis 3, when man sinned, man marred, he marred that image. And when you get to Genesis 4, verse 1, it says, Adam was created in God's image. Adam's sons were created in Adam's image. What happened was he marred that image of God by sin. And ever since then, ever since then, God has been working through Calvary to make you back into his image. He wants a little Jesus in every factory. He wants a little Jesus behind every semi-truck wheel. He wants a little Jesus in every kitchen. He wants a little Jesus in every pulpit and on every pew. He wants a little Jesus in every office. He wants a little Jesus in every neighborhood. And through Calvary, God recreates. That's what being born again is. It's God recreating, beginning the process of recreating His image in you. Now, one of the Bible says that He has predestined that we should become like His Son. That's what we're saying. That's what the Christian life is all about. But you listen to me carefully. If you react, you have dug in your heels and you're refusing to let God make you like His Son. If you respond, you'll come out of it a person on the other side and you'll be more ready to face the next day than you were before. The silversmith comes into his shop and with a pair of tongs, long tongs, he picks up a piece of silver and he goes to the furnace and he puts it in the fire until it's red hot glowing. And he brings it out. And he lays it on the anvil and he picks up the hammer and he beats on that piece of silver. He's pounding out the impurities. And then he puts it in the water. Steam. Cool it off. And he looks at it. 
puts it in the fire again until it's red hot. He brings it out. It's glowing. He lays it on the anvil and he picks up the hammer and he beats on it again. And then he puts it in the fire to cool it off. And it does that over and over and over and over and over again. Until he can finally, the impurities, he's beating the impurities out. Until he can finally take that piece of silver with the tongs, put it in the fire and bring it out glowing hot. Let on the anvil, pick up the hammer and beat on it. And then put it in the cool water until he can finally look at it and say, I'm beginning to see myself. That's what God is doing with you. He's picking you up with the divine providence of his tongues and he's putting you in the fire of life's trouble and experiences. Sometimes he's making you red hot. He pulls you out and you're glowing and he lays you on the anvil of experience and he picks up the hammer of the word of God and he beats on you. Then he sends something along. Pour water. Put you in. Give you some relief. Over and over again. Over and over again. Put you into the fire. Lays you on the anvil, beats you on me, puts you under the water until you look, until one day he'll put you into the fire. He'll lay you on the anvil and he'll beat on you. And he'll put you in the water. And he'll look at you and he'll say, Hmm, I see myself. It's beginning to look like me. That's exactly, that's all God is doing. But it's not up to you just to go through your experience. It's up to you to respond. Lord, with open life, what is it? What is it, oh God, that you're trying to do in my life? God will leave out no ingredient to make you more like Jesus. God has you in a building process. You're not a finished product. You're just a piece of silver with a lot of impurities. And so God sends that fiery experience, that unpleasant experience. Sometimes you think it's unbearable. Then He beats on you. Sometimes you think it's unwarranted. Then He puts you into the water. Something to help cool you off a little bit, give you some relief. That's what life is. Man that is born of a woman. That's all of us, isn't it? I told somebody one time to grab in trouble, they would the fact the mother was a woman. Man that is born of a woman is a few days. A few days. Hey, a couple of you guys probably old I know one is older than me. I will say which one. But the fact is, that's all life is. It's God making you more like His Son. And when you die, correction, when Jesus comes and you get your new body, you're going to be like Him. 
But he's not talking in Romans 8, 28 and 29 about the sweet by and by. He's talking about the nasty now and now. He wants you to be that little Jesus on your street. He wants you to be that little Jesus for your homeschool, don't you? In your school. He wants you to be that little Jesus on your pew. He wants you to be that little Jesus in your truck or in your office or in your factory. But he has to have a willing subject. He has to have a subject who's willing to say, Lord, it's me. I'm yours. You make out of me what you want. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. Have you been trusting? Remember when Becky, my daughter, she's, well, I won't tell you, I won't tell you that she's 38 now. Uh, but when she was three years old, she, I'd take her and put her on top of the church brick sign where I passed her. And if you jump, she was scared to her, she wouldn't do it. I would make her do it. After she learned that she could trust Daddy, I said, trust me. I don't want you fall. Once she learned she could trust Daddy, she wanted up on that sign and jump. You can trust your heavenly Father. He's not going to do for you what's bad for you. He's not even going to do for you what's indifferent for you. By the way, if he does anything to you, it's so you'll let him do it for you. Just to make you more like his son. Why don't you help him speed up the progress? Don't panic. God is still on the phone. Examine yourself. Don't react. Respond. Remember, it's just a part of His plan, which is to make you like Jesus. Let's stand. Let's Heavenly Father, I don't know what else to say. I've done the best I know how. Others here could have done a much better job. But 